Well, today on the podcast, we have my new friend, Dr. Mark Talbot, and Dr. Talbot teaches at Wheaton College and Seminary, and he uh, specializes in the areas of um, theological philosophy. Would that be appropriate, Dr. Talbot? Yeah, yeah, that's philosophical theology is usually the way it's put if you're in the philosophy field. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, so he's written a book that caught my attention on the Crossway publishing website called When the Stars Disappear. And it's a book about suffering and how can Christians make sense of suffering in our lived experience. So maybe, uh, Mark, we could just start there. Like the title of your book is When the Stars Disappear. Why did you choose that for a title? I had a student who committed suicide and well, I, I won't give an exact year, um, but um, quite a few years ago now. And um, uh, I was talking to his parents. Before it happened, he had been deeply depressed. And you can imagine that his committing suicide was a calamity for them. They were very earnest Christians. And for them, all the stars of life disappeared. The place the title comes from is that in Acts 27 and 28, when Paul was being transported to Rome in order to meet with Caesar, he uh, got in a very bad storm and we're told that the sun and the moon and the stars all disappeared. Um, uh, Here they are in the middle of the Mediterranean. They're worried about uh, uh, being pushed onto one of the sandbars that's in the middle of the Mediterranean and all dying. They lost all hope. They, in fact, were so desperate that they didn't eat for over two weeks. And in that situation, God came to Paul and told him that they would all be all right. And so the picture that I'm trying to get across is that really significant suffering, um, sometimes just metaphorically and sometimes literally, that really significant suffering, what I call profound suffering, tends to make all of our orienting lights disappear. And we need those lights. We need to be oriented in life. We need to get our bearings because if we don't have that, we have no idea about how to move forward. Yeah, it's points of orientation, right? Right. And those points uh, sometimes are obscured or covered. And um, man, we've all been through that. I mean, I'm 40. Let's see. I'm 40. I can't even remember. (laughs) My wife is going to be 45. I'm, I, uh, is that right? Yeah, I was born in 1976. Um, And so I'm old enough, however old I am, I'm 43 or 44. (laughs) I honestly can't remember. Um, uh, I'm old enough to have experienced some suffering that is disorienting. I remember being a 20 year old college kid and that really wasn't my experience or even in my twenties, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know through reading your book that that's part of your experience as well. Um, just life happens and horrible things happen. Um, you know, and I, and as we've talked a little bit offline, you know, you're not I'd love to hear from you why sometimes you are reticent to want to talk about your own sufferings um, and where that can be helpful and where that isn't helpful. And just love your experience uh, to hear, for here you articulate your feelings about your experiences. 
Um, I mentioned early in the book that I uh, took a fall off a Tarzan-like rope when I was 17, fell about 50 feet. Another guy jumped on. Uh, you had to sit on a seat in order to stay on. He didn't catch the seat. We got out over the far end of the arc, and I realized I was going to fall on him. And the only thing I thought was, if I fall on him, I'll kill him. So I shoved him off one way. Um, that meant that I got peeled off. My shoulders hit the ground first. And my feet went over my head. And uh, I knew we both had to be pretty badly hurt. He got up and was trying to move, even though he didn't have any breath. And so I held him down. And after I got him calmed down a little bit, I looked and I saw that my legs were in this little creek that was at the bottom of this gully and that I wasn't feeling anything. And I knew immediately that I had um, damaged my spinal column. There was a great pole vaulter. He held the world record in 64 out at the University of Washington. This all took place in Washington State. Um, Brian Sternberg, uh, he was the one who pioneered fiberglass poles. At one point, he was practicing his landings on a trampoline, somehow lost his orientation, came down on his neck, and was quadriplegic. And that had happened in 64. He was written up, in fact, in Life magazine back then. And I had uh, met Brian and had some idea of what had happened to him. And I immediately knew that the same thing had happened to me further down my spine. Now, the interesting thing, Zach, is that you would think that if anything would disorient you, it would be an experience like that. Right. But in fact, it didn't. Hmm. Uh, it actually, I, I had become a Christian when I was 12. I was concerned about uh, some ways that I was being tempted. And um, uh, I had become a Christian. I was 17 when I had this accident and had gotten wilder and wilder. Uh, just did all sorts of really dangerous things. And I had prayed that the Lord would hold me, keep me close to himself. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to say that he did that by giving me the accident, right. but he certainly at least permitted it. Right. And, and um, as soon as I realized what had happened to me, I had this deep sense of God's love. Hmm. And I um, and, uh, spent six months in the hospital, and even though I hardly cracked a Bible during that time because I was working so hard to get back to the place that I could walk, I ended up six months later able to walk out with a couple of crutches, uh, a couple of canes. Uh, while, while I was working really hard at that, I had this very deep sense of God's love for me. That was a different experience, Zach, than some that I had later. And when you ask about whether or not um, um, the reasons I think we ought not to share all of our kinds of suffering, I think it's like this. I think it's that some aspects of our lives aren't meant to be public. I think they need to remain private in order for us not to have too much of ourselves and perhaps of those that we love exposed mm -hmm. to the world at large. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, when you think about it, God really was um, um, showing grace to Adam and Eve when he clothed them more adequately than with the fig leaves, yeah. when he actually gave them more adequate clothing. And that was to some degree to cover them in such a way that they didn't feel exposed all the time. And my, my sense, as I often tell my students, is that there are some things that it's perfectly fine to share publicly, such as my accident. Seems to me that's perfectly fine. There are other things 
which we would share at most with a couple of people, especially if we were struggling with them or we needed somebody to help us with them. But you wouldn't share it more widely. It wouldn't be the sort of thing that should be out there for everybody to know. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. What What do you feel like is the is the danger that we we risk if we if we do share too broadly of those most intimate, um, painful experiences of our lives? Yeah. Um, it's going to depend on what the kind of experience is, but it seems to me that, for instance, if it involved a really great temptation, sure. uh, one of the problems might be that we would not only then after that feel as if uh, people were always judging us in terms of what we had had shared that way, but um, it could also be that they'd actually be doing that. Yeah. And um, uh, more or less what it comes to is that God made us for communion with other persons. Mm -hmm. Our relationship with him should be completely free and open. Of course, he knows everything about us better than we know ourselves. Right. But with regard to other persons in this sin-damaged world, um, we need to be kind of careful what we talk about at times for fear that we will put so much of ourselves out in public that it will either make us ashamed or make others uh, such that they would judge us for what they now know about us that they didn't know before. Like, like kind of like um, maybe I'm defined by that experience in the thought of exactly. another person. Yeah, exactly. Right, where I should be defined by my identity in Christ or whatever. Yes, very good. Yeah, yeah. I think that's excellent that, that, that uh, people tend to latch on to what we say. And if we give them experiences that kind of startle them with regard to how shocking an experience is, they may very well ever after think of us that way rather than thinking of us as having our identity in Christ. Yeah, amen. Yeah, so you would maybe make a distinction between the accident that you had um, and maybe things that are, I'm trying to think of just getting it real practical for our people, like, you know, the horrible uh, reality of sexual abuse in our world. Right. Or, or, exactly. or physical abuse, you know. Um, right. Or a besetting temptation. Yeah. If you yeah. had a really awful besetting temptation, Paul never told us. Uh, what his thorn was. Um, mm. And of course, there are lots of interpretations of it. Right. My hunch is that it was a besetting temptation that kept him humble. And yet he never told us what that was. And it may be for this very reason that that would, in a sense, be salacious. It would lead people to think more about that than of his identity in Christ and his glorifying his Savior. Yeah, man, it's such a, it's such a, um, this demands wisdom. You know, it does. It demands yes. a lot of wisdom because that's that, right. Because on the one hand, we know that um, there can be much help from I think like we like you said, one or two, three trusted, really trusted friends that fear the Lord and love His Word. And but if that's something that we get defined as, I don't know. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail, but it's it's got me thinking. So I appreciate that, Mark. Um, you say on page nineteen of your book that. One of the aims of your book is to help Christians remove some of the obstacles that suffering tends to throw across the path of Christian faith and hope. And I would just love to hear, what do you typically see as those obstacles? 
In this book, I'm talking about profound suffering, which I characterize as suffering that involves experiencing something that is so deep and disruptive that it dominates our consciousness and threatens to overwhelm us hmm. and often tempts us to lose hope that our lives can ever be good again. If you think about uh, that definition of profound suffering, that characterization, then calamities like my friends losing their son to suicide and also chronic conditions, maybe someone having a child who's uh, severely handicapped in some way and they're having to have to spend virtually all of every day helping that child and so on and so yeah. forth. Either of them could be profound suffering. Now, what, quite often what happens is when we suffer profoundly, our faith in God as perfectly good and all-powerful can waver. Mm -hmm. uh, we more or less think, how could an all-good, all-powerful God allow this to happen to me? Right. And since profound suffering can tempt us to think that our lives will never be good again, we can lose our hope that ultimately God will work out everything for our good. So profound suffering, the way that Henri Blochet puts it, a great French theologian who taught at Wheaton for a few years, the way that he puts it is that uh, evil, he's not just talking about suffering, but he's talking about evil, is a problem for Christians. And he says that the meaning of a problem is something that is thrown across your path that blocks you from being able to move forward and to see where you want to go. Yeah. And uh, it seems to me that that's what can happen. And in your experience, not necessarily your personal experience, but just your experience um, living in this world, and I'm sure interacting with your own experience, but also the experience of others that are your age or older, younger. Um, I mean, this we all know people that have just endured terrors and horrors that we wouldn't wish on anybody. That's just part of the world we live in. H how do you see those folks making it? If, for, if those folks are Christians... Like, for example, we have some dear friends from um, uh, when we lived in another city and worked in a different church. Um, they just lost their adopted son, 12 years old, was born with some special needs, some seizure activity, and he just had a horrible seizure and he died. And 12 years old. And I mean, I can't, I've got a 12 year old. I can't make sense of that, you know? And it wasn't like this was something they expected. You know, he would have seizures, but none of the seizures had been fatal ever. And he's just gone. And in a situation like that, you don't even know what to say. You don't know how to think about that. You, it's like our categories just get blurry, right? Yes, yes. But as you think more holistically, um, maybe more globally in terms of time that passes, so... Um, what are some of the ways that you see folks endure? Are there themes in endurance through those kind of situations sure. that you can there are observe? not only themes in endurance, Zach. It seems to me that God also strengthens people to endure. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the ability to um, uh, not lose one's orientation and suffering to some degree depends on how much you've suffered and how often you have seen God to meet you in your suffering, or how often you've read the stories of biblical saints who suffered. Um, my uh, book uh, deals particularly with Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah. 
And of course, Naomi wanted a permanent name change. She wanted a name change from pleasant to bitter right. because she thought that her life was going to be bitter from then on out. Job says, my eye will never again see good. Jeremiah is so upset with what God is putting him through for him to be a witness to the way that God is going to abandon his Old Testament people that he uh, gets awfully close to blaspheming God in chapter 20. Uh, he certainly says, I want out of this. Right. With both Naomi and Job, the end of the stories show us that generally in this life, God will probably bring us back to a better place. Mm -hmm. My reason for including Jeremiah is that God never did that in this life. We don't even have Jeremiah's death recorded in Jeremiah, which is actually the longest book in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, it just kind of fritters out. And as people have recognized, as Paul House has mentioned, um, Jeremiah's uh, book after chapter 20, until then it seems to be pretty chronological. After that, it kind of jumps around chronologically. Someone who in fact, has been tortured or who has been through really, really awful things. Right. Now, what I would suggest is that um, if we look at Romans 5, 3 through 5, we start to get an idea of what God will do for his people. Mm -hmm. And so we're told to rejoice in our suffering because suffering, in fact, will produce endurance. Endurance will produce character. And finally, character will have, bear the fruit of a hope that will never be ashamed. And I think what happens is that uh, when we suffer um, uh, a bit more often, we more quickly, God will probably meet us again. Now, if the suffering is utterly different than any suffering we've had before, we may have to learn the lesson all over. Yeah. But very often, it seems to me, that and, and this has happened with me that again and again as i go through things that are difficult in most of the cases i can say with the psalmist in psalm 119 uh you are good and do good um uh, uh it was right for you to afflict me in faithfulness you afflicted me yeah. the psalmists the psalmists take home of his suffering is that it brought him closer to God. Mm. And if we can remember that and remember that God is sovereign and that nothing falls out of his hand, then even the worst things over time are such that we can often see God's hand in it. Not necessarily, but almost always, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. I mean, that resonates with my experience. I went through a, a bout of suffering um, that was very acute um, about two and a half, three years ago. And, um, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody, yeah. but what you said is so true. Like there's a communion with the Lord, um, that is more palpable than maybe ever before. And things do generally kind of get better. Um, and I can look back and go, man, the Lord has used this in yes. amazing ways. I think the thing that, um, I want to encourage people at our church to remember is that reflecting on your suffering with someone else that's suffering, it's an issue of timing. Like, I would never, and this is what, what I'd love to hear your perspective on too as, as well, Mark, is 
like thinking of my friends. I mean, this just happened a week ago or so. Um, how do we, like, it would not be helpful for me to go and share, well, you know, the Lord is going to use this, and, um, and man, the God has used my suffering, and I'm closer to him. And I mean, they're just blinded by grief yeah. and disorientation yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, can you give us advice on how to best minister to folks that are enduring something so acute and um, bewildering like you write about in your book in, in mm -hmm. terms of like the initial phase yes. and then as yes. it, pro it progresses and evol evolves. Yeah. yeah, there, there are, I don't, I don't know that we want to call them stages because that would be too defined, but there are more or less periods within our suffering. And generally if people are suffering something that is really acute, it is not our business to try to tell them that God's going to bring good out of it or to tell them what good brought, God brought to us out of something. It's our business to weep with those who weep, mm -hmm. to sit beside them, to pray that the Lord in his mercy will by his Holy Spirit show them grace. And uh, there actually is really interesting empirical inf uh, um, uh, evidence, Zach, that, for instance, if you suffer the death of a dearly loved spouse, that getting to the place that you get back to what they call the same degree of subjective well-being, hmm. which actually can be objectively measured, sure. um, that getting back to it takes about seven and a half years. Wow. And... And the initial intense uh, period is not one where it's our business to be telling people that uh, someday they'll see why God has put them through something. It's for us to stand beside them. When my friends lost their son, they found that after about three months, people were impatient with them. Right. Uh, they would uh, ask them how they were. Their friends would ask them how they were, and they'd say, well, we're not very good yet. And the friends just didn't want to talk about it. And so right. I, I think part of our business in those situations is just to remain open to the people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, Patient, and Patience. And patience and, yeah. and then just pray mm -hmm. that God will, in fact, empower them with the ability hopefully and probably to see his hand in what has happened. Just like you said, you can go through something really awful. You wouldn't wish it on, uh, on your worst enemy. And yet, uh, at some distance out, you may very well say, ah, but there is good in this. And the good may be, among other things, that you realize how then you can help others. When my friend, my student died, I had been through something really awful about three or four years before. Uh, the, the worst thing I've been through in my life. And, um, uh, and I realized as soon as he died that the reason I had been through that was that God was preparing me to be gentle with his parents, hmm. uh, to, to be willing just to listen to them. And for over a year, I listened to them about once a week for two to three hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and my wife would say, Mark, you get off the phone and you're just beaten and it was because it was so hard just to listen and to pray and to try to be at the place where they were and not to say, get over it. Right. Yeah. It's bearing with one another in love, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think about, um, I know Job is one of the main 
um, subjects of your book, and I think about oftentimes with Job's friends, you know, what you see, and I, you know, I've heard different guys comment, comment on this, is they did really well those first six days when they kept their mouth shut and just sat with him. <laughs> That's you know right. I mean? And then when they yeah, opened their yeah, mouth, yeah. the explanation started, started to come. And um, that's where things go south in the book of Job. And we learn at the end that, you know, Job has to offer sacrifice to spare them God's wrath, right? And because they just screwed it up because they, yep. they, they yep. drew a one-to-one connection between, well, you know, the, the explaining of somebody's suffering. And right. um, in, my, in my experience, that's just not helpful. Um, maybe you have a relationship that can endure that and there's trust and all that, but... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of Job and the wisdom of the silence of his friends. <laughs> they were just with him, right? They were just with him, and they uh, they didn't offer any words for that first week. So, with people who are uh, depressed, one of the worst things you can do is to tell them to get over it. Right. It just doesn't work. Yeah, if they if they could, <laughs> they would, right? Yeah, right, right, and 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 it just rubs salt in the wound. It is. Um, uh, this all of this really relates pretty well to the fact that I talk about uh, the Hebrew word kesed, mm-hmm. which deals with God's steadfast love, yeah, with His unfailing love for us. Uh, in Moses's um, um, hearing from God, hearing God proclaim His name in Exodus thirty-four. The only Hebrew word that is repeated twice. Which shows that, in fact, that is what is essential to God's character. And the interesting thing is that God will never leave us or forsake us. That's part of his chesed to us. Yet, also, we are supposed to show chesed to others. Right. And Job warned his friends that they were not showing him Kesset yeah. and that they would be judged for that. Mm-hmm. Look at the difference between that and what goes on in Ruth. Uh, Naomi showed Kesset to Ruth and her sister um, by uh, telling them, counseling them that they should stay home in Moab and not go with her to um, uh, back to Bethlehem. Um, uh, Ruth showed Kesset and saying, no, I'm going to go with you. Uh, I'll live and die with you. Your God will be my God. Boaz showed Kesed to Ruth in order to show Kesed to Naomi. In the story, God only appears right at the beginning. He ends the famine that had driven, uh, had led um, uh, Naomi and her husband and her boys to leave Bethlehem. And at the end, he uh, gives um, um, uh, um, uh, conception Uh, to Ruth. Those are the only two times he appears. In between all of what he does, he does through the kessid of others, Mm -hmm. through the steadfast love of them for each other. And it's interesting. Yeah, Mark, I really appreciate that. And can you unpack a little bit more for those that might not be as familiar with uh, their Bibles, like this this Hebrew word that's so central to how God identifies Himself in the Old Testament, Kesed. Um, what is? I know there's no like English perfect parallel. <laughs> so help us understand um, 
how is that word usually translated in English? Like when people read their English Bible, what should they be looking for? Yeah. And what's the profound meaning of it that's so vital for us as believers that, that suffer? Yeah. In most instances in the ESV, it will, if it's referring to God, it will be translated as steadfast love. Um, uh, it's often unfailing love in the NIV. Dan Block, great Old Testament scholar who teaches here at Wheaton, um, says of it when he's talking about uh, the book of Ruth, he says that it's one of those Hebrew words whose meaning cannot be captured by one English word. And then he says, what it does is it wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts. And he says that that cluster of concepts involve all of the positive attributes of God, his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his benevolence, his loyalty, and his covenant faithfulness. Wow. One way to paraphrase it would be to say that Kesed is the sort of love of God and neighbor that would lead one person to act unselfishly for another's benefit. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. That's really helpful. So really to understand Kesed, you have to understand who God is. Yes. Yeah, yes. You have to know the character of God, and it's kind of like the summation of his... Um, yeah. I, are you familiar with the um, Jesus Storybook Bible? No. It's a kid's Bible that has been um, very popular in the last 15 years. And um, the, the name, the author, it's a woman, Sally, somebody, I, the name escapes me. Um, but the way that she translates that is to the never failing, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. That's how yeah. she... Yes, Translate. yes, yes. Wonderful it. way to, to talk about it. Yeah. it. It really is at the very center of God's character. And it means, among other things, that given who God is, he would not make a promise that he is not going to keep. Yeah, yeah, the promise-keeping God. It's good. Another theme that I really appreciated in your book, Mark, was this concept of breathing lessons. And... Um, I'd love for you to help our people understand what that is and why that's important for us when we endure suffering. The book's set up in such a way that in the first chapter, I just try to kind of lay out the kind of suffering I'm going to deal with. The second chapter deals with uh, Naomi and Job and Jeremiah up to the place where they despair most deeply. And I cut off the chapter right there because I want people to realize just how awful things can seem for God's people. The third chapter is called Breathing Lessons, and it's on the Psalms of Lament. And the Psalms of Lament are, in fact, more frequent. There are more Psalms of Lament than there are any other kinds of Psalms among our book of Psalms. And uh, within the framework of the Laments, you begin to realize that there actually is um, um, uh, both um, uh, instruction on the fact that we need to breathe and then how to breathe. If you think about it, quite often when people suffer in some physical way, if in fact they have enough pain, it just plain takes away their breath. Mm -hmm. They stop breathing. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I've had a lot of physical therapy. And one of my uh, favorite uh, physical therapists uh, when she'd ask me to do something that was really hard and I'd be straining to do it, the first thing that she would say is breathe. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what we need to do. And grieving uh, in the Psalms is more or less being willing to talk to God. The fact that we mustn't stop talking to them. First of the breathing lessons is simply to continue communicating with God, to recognize that there is nothing that you are thinking that God doesn't already know, and so to take it all to God. But then there's a rhythm that has more or less three beats, and the, the, the beats of proper breathing are first that you inhale by remembering what God has done in the past for you and for his people. You recall to yourself the great faithful deeds of God. Mm -hmm. The second is uh, that you exhale by being willing to pour out to God your troubles and your laments. And then you breathe in again. And this always happens in the uh, individual psalms of lament. In the group psalms, it doesn't happen every time. But in the individual psalms, written by individual psalmists, with every one of them, except for Psalm 88, after the psalmists have lamented to God, they, in fact, then uh, either vow to praise him or start praising him again. And that's this breathing in again. It's a matter of breathing in God's promises and breathing them out to him. And so there's this kind of three-step movement to the way that we should approach God when things are really awful for us. They always depend, Zach. They always depend on recognizing that in salvation, God takes the ones who are going to God and trying to get him to listen. Yeah. Instead, it's that he always has taken the initiative, as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. Adam, where are you? As he did in calling Abraham, as he did in freeing his people from Egyptian bondage, he always takes the initiative. That, of course, is the first step in the breathing. And it's only after that, after we've inhaled that, that then we exhale to him what is bothering us. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Man, I... um. When I remember well in college, um, I kind of had a revolution of my theology, and my my roommate came home with this book by this guy named John Piper. This would have been <laughs> this would have been probably 1996, and um, he's like, "Man, you got to check this out." And uh, I was like, "Okay, whatever." And so I started reading it, and the first page or two or three is talking about the the sovereignty of God and that was you know I was raised a Christian kid Christian culture you know like small group Bible studies and church every Sunday um, it was a Lutheran church but it was a gospel preaching Lutheran church you know like re repent and believe you know um, so it's unique in that sense and I thought I you know but I didn't, I mean, I didn't really know what the Bible said about much, and I thought I did, but I didn't. Um, and I was confronted with this concept of God's sovereignty, that he ordains what comes to pass. And I know that's, um, you know, legions of books have been written about that. But I remember thinking at the time that this is new to me, biblically, and I found it strangely comforting that um, that God is in control. And um, that, 
you know, a lot of people recoil at the idea of God's sovereignty for whatever reasons. But for me, I found it to be a strange comfort. Um, and I've never gone back. And I see it biblically. I'm persuaded that it's, it's, it's right. How does understanding God's sovereignty relate to our suffering? It seems to me that to say God is sovereign uh, is to say that absolutely nothing falls out of his hand. Mm -hmm. Nothing falls out of his hand. Everything that happens only happens because either God wills it, for instance, God the Father willed the incarnation of his son, or permits it. He permitted Adam and Eve to sin. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have sinned if he hadn't permitted that. Now, if it's true that nothing falls out of his hand, then nothing that happens to God's hand. And if we are his children and he loves us, then in fact, we know that that means that um, uh, his loving hand is still around us. If God is sovereign, he can do whatever he promises including promising that all things will work together for uh, good for those who love God. And if we believe that God is sovereign, then we can know, as Paul did, that nothing can separate us from our Lord's love. Even if we can know that, even if we can't understand, even if we're perplexed, given the suffering that we're going through, how that can be. To me, it's really significant, Zach, that of all the New Testament people, um, uh, Paul was the one who probably suffered most. Mm -hmm. um, he gives us this catalog of his suffering in 2 Corinthians, and it's just absolutely horrifying if you slow down enough to realize what's going on with it. And yet Paul was the one who could write in Romans 8 that, in fact, uh, nothing could separate us from God's love. Right. Amen. And I think that that just tells us that, um, uh, that God's sovereignty will hang on to us. I've found that I often take comfort in God's sovereignty when I'm facing potentially bad things. Uh, I started to learn this when I went to college because having had this accident at the time, I couldn't be absolutely sure that I had control over my bladder or my bowels, and yet I'd have to go places. Wow. And I would just pray, Lord, um, uh, I know that whatever happens is within your will, but um, uh, please be merciful to me and yeah. spare me uh, yeah. from embarrassment. And That's he right. did. But then what I found is that he does that even with life-threatening emergencies, yeah. several of which I've been through. If we believe in God's sovereignty, then what ends up happening is that we can concentrate on showing to those around us when we are in a life-threatening emergency that we trust God. And quite often... Uh, our calmness is something that then they want to know how in the world that could happen in the situation we're in. Yeah. What is the alternative if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God? How, like, yeah. where, where does that leave us? It means that God could be overcome by circumstances or by the sin of other human beings and so on and so forth. And in that way, not be able uh, to uh, control what's befallen us. Uh, it leads ultimately to a really, really awful place because it means that you can't trust that God is behind whatever is happening, no matter how bad it seems. 
Yeah, it's like the, we live in a chaotic universe and God's, he loves us, but in, it's kind of like, well, I wish I could have done something about it, but sorry. Like, that's not how our God is presented in the scriptures. Not at all. Um, not at all. There's a woman, Joyce Sackett, who wrote a book, um, I suppose it was 20 years ago now, called Goodbye, Janine. She lost her daughter to suicide. She was out uh, one morning gardening early in the morning and it got kind of uneasy, but didn't know why. When she came in, she went up to her daughter's room and her daughter had hung herself hmm. from her bunk bed. Interestingly enough, Joyce, who had been part of the Navigators, had hidden so much of scripture in her heart and particularly the Psalms that she never, she never questioned that God somehow was in control, that this had not fallen out of his hand. And uh, her book, Goodbye, Janine, is just a magnificent testimony. That doesn't mean that she could, uh, right off the bat, um, uh, write the book and have it be what it was supposed to be. Uh, the editor of The Navigators, when she first turned it in, said, uh, Joyce, um, I think this book needs more time. Uh, so even she had to go through the various periods in order mm -hmm. to know what to say. But she never lost her faith in God. She never lost her hope. She never lost her trust that God indeed was in charge. Yeah. Yeah, it really um, is a comfort to me because, I mean, I can imagine the calamities that could happen. You know, for all we know, I could have cancer right now and be gone in nine months. Or my wife yeah. um, could have cancer and be gone in nine months. But... You know, and, and those kind of things that you can imagine that would that would really, really tempt you to despair in grievous, grievous ways. Um, but I just can't wrap my head around believing that God is out of control. Like that seems even worse. Yes. Like that, that he's not in some sense standing behind this. And we can debate, you know, causation and all that. But. Like just the fact that if like these two twin pillars seem so vital for the Christian understanding of endurance and suffering is, is that God is sovereign and that God loves me. Yes. And if we get either one of those out of balance, we're going to be in dangerous territory. But they're, right. they're a parallel stream that has mm -hmm. to be embraced. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Another um, biblical theme that, that – that I know is really important for us as believers thinking about endurance and suffering is Hebrews chapter 11. And um, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Now, not everybody who's listening to this podcast would even maybe have read Hebrews 11. So maybe, Mark, you could start by just explaining what is Hebrews 11 all about and then why is that so important for us to um, consider as a portion of Scripture to, to help us in times of need. I handle this in my epilogue in the book. There are four chapters. It's deliberately short. There's only 100 pages of text, and then there are about 30 pages of notes for people to read later. But I handle it in the epilogue because it's so tremendously important. Hebrews 11 quite often is characterized as the chapter that celebrates the heroes of Old Testament faith. I'm a little uneasy with this idea of the heroes of Old Testament faith. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it uh, runs through um, uh, the great, some of the great saints of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, so on and so forth, and tells us 
um, uh, what God promised them, what he proclaimed to them, the way that they then tried to obey him. And yet in each of the cases, in each of the cases, they did not receive what God had promised. And so Abraham is told, God appears to him, he's a, of a family of moon worshipers, God appears to him and says, start walking, I'll tell you when to stop. The land that you're going to stop on is going to be uh, the land that uh, your people are going to inherit. Mm -hmm. He walks, God tells him to stop, but he never owns a foot of that ground. Mm -hmm. Isaac doesn't own it, any of it. Neither does Jacob. None of them own any of that. What that forced them to do was it forced them to look up and to rethink God's promises and recognize that God was asking them to be resolute and endure and realize that they were looking for a city with foundations, as mm -hmm. it's put, which would descend from heaven when our Lord returns. And so much of what's going on in Hebrews 11 is it's trying to tell us that uh, again and again, God will promise um, will make a promise that we will misinterpret as meaning, oh, he's going to fulfill that for us in this world if we are just faithful, when instead the promise is for what will come at the end of, the of time when our Lord returns. And, and by promising but not delivering in this world of time, we begin to realize that this world is not the most important of things. Yeah. And so Hebrews teaches us resoluteness and endurance. And one of the points that I make, Zach, that I, I haven't seen very many people make, is that God never has to fall back on plan B. This is part of his sovereignty, mm -hmm. that he never has to say, whoops, that was a mistake. I'm going to have to try again. Uh, instead, it's always plan A. And so when God said to Abraham, while he was still named Abram, when he said, start walking, I'll tell you when to stop, that will be your land, you will, um, uh, a great people will come from you and all of the families of the earth will be blessed um, uh, by what you have done. When God uh, said all of that, uh, all, when he promised all of that to Abram, um, Abram um, needed then to obey God, because if he had not obeyed God, that part of God's work in the Old Testament would not have been there. And the reason that's important is because God has things that he wants us to do. Mm -hmm. He wants us to walk in his ways. And we can pretty easily find ourselves uh, saying, well, I'm going to let myself off the hook. I don't really want to witness in this situation. I don't really want to understand uh, this bit of scripture deeper. It's okay. God will use somebody else. Mm -hmm. No, uh, God used Abram. Right. He used Isaac. He used Jacob. He used Moses. Moses, of course, didn't want to go back to Egypt. Right. And yet he went back. And as a result, he was part of God's great plan to bring his son into the world. We need to think that way with regard to our own lives. We are part of the vanguard of God in this world. We are supposed to be on the forefront of walking in his ways and witnessing to the truth that comes out of our being convinced of the resurrection of our Lord. Amen. The whole biblical story is about um, uh, the way that death and suffering came into the world. What uh, the story of our Lord and his resurrection is all about 
is it's God taking decisive action to turn that all around and finally to bring everything to the perfect ending that he has planned before the foundation of the world. Amen. And I think that's a great, let me ask you one more question. I think this is a great way to kind of wrap up our conversation, Mark, is the connections between eschatology and our present sufferings. And I think a lot of, for me, um, there's a temptation in, in deep suffering to want to control it somehow. Or maybe the control gets expressed as expl- explana- explaining it. Well, this must yes. be what God is up to. Yeah. This is yeah. what God is up to. Yeah. And, and you reach a point where it's like, I can't make sense of this. I can't make sense of this. And I, I'm reminded of um, Jesus, First Peter, I think chapter 2. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Um, like he, the, the Lord will make this all work out somehow. Yes. Um, he's, in, he's not controlling. I mean, Jesus could have controlled it in the moment and he tells guys as much, right? Yeah. I can, I can get a legion of angels anytime I want. Yeah. Like I'm in control, but I'm relinquishing that control. And I think about, um, just the, you know, the, the, the eschatological conviction that we have at Christian as Christians that. All things will be made right somehow. We don't know how, but it's going to happen. And that's something that I find a lot of comfort in that helps me kind of release the grip of my control when I'm suffering is like if I don't have a, a, a savior that's in control and will make all things right, I might lose my mind. Now, the problem is the waiting. Yes. The waiting. Yes. Um, so help... Well, that's a long way of asking or me just preaching a little bit. Um, sorry for my mini sermon, but the connections between eschatology and God's sovereignty and our present sufferings. It's part of what's known as the already, not yet that uh, already we, because of our Lord's earthly work are righteous or justified before God mm-hmm. and are part of God's family. But uh, we do not yet possess what we will possess um, uh, when he returns. Um, you're, I, I loved your referring to Jesus and with regard to the fact that he trusted his father uh, to act justly. Um, our Lord, in his humanness as the last Adam, uh, learned obedience, as we're told, in Hebrews. Right. And I think that that means that he did not always know exactly what was going to happen next. Mm. Uh, if he had always known it, then uh, his, his temptations would not have been at all like ours. And so it seems to me that part of what we need to do here is recognize that there are some things that are beyond us now and may be beyond us forever. Mm-hmm. The way that I like to put it, Zach, is that there are three great mysteries to the Christian faith. We can't understand the Trinity. It's not possible to understand how God can be one being in three persons. Mm-hmm. All of the analogies fail at one point or another. Right. It's not possible for us to understand how Jesus is fully God and fully human. We just can't do that. The third thing we can't understand is how it can be that God is sovereign and in control of everything despite our making free, responsible choices, despite there being causal regularities in the world that he does not generally interrupt. I think that 
even in the eschaton, even in the final time, it may very well be that we won't understand those things, hmm. but that what will happen is that it won't matter anymore. Yeah. It may be that right now I would have a pressing need to understand why God has let me go through something. It may be that when I see our Lord face to face, that will just drop away. Right. Second Corinthians 4, um, uh, the sufferings of the present cannot be compared with the glory that is to come. And it may very well be that part of our recognizing that God is God is that there are some explanations we'll never get. And when we're wiser than we are now, we won't care. Yeah. Yeah. Job never got an explanation, did he? That's right. That's right. You know? Yeah. The thing that I really, um, the, the, the hard part, and I, I share this with our people a lot, is when you're someone is in the hospital and they're in surgery and you're sitting in the waiting room. That's the hard part of the, of the not yet. Right. That's right. And that's where we need each other. Yes. It's better. Sometimes it's better if there's people in the waiting room with you We can play a game, we can pray together, we can talk, we can, you know, but my word is the waiting room is hard. And that's why it seems like there's such a strong theme um, of waiting on the Lord in the Bible. Probably part of our practicing chesed is our uh, being willing to, shall we say, exemplify, because I don't think we're always supposed to say it, just to show that we don't have to have answers right. in order to trust him. Yeah, amen. That some things are beyond our finding out. Yeah, amen. Well, Mark, this has been a really, really helpful conversation, and I so appreciate it. And um I think I read somewhere that your this first book on suffering when the stars disappear is a first book in a series. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. There are going to be four books. Uh, I actually split this up uh, in 2019 because I wanted the first book to be really short so that uh, people who are suffering uh, could get through it and not get a tome in front of them. The second volume, which is called Give Me Understanding That I May Live, um, uh, means to place our suffering, in other words, our individual story of suffering within the full Christian story of creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation. And I'm just finishing it right now. Your friend Justin and I, uh, he, he and I talked just yesterday. I need to get it to him in the next two weeks in order for it to be out this year. Okay. Uh, it's twice as long as the first one. But again, I'm trying to write pretty simply because um, while I think the concepts are difficult, I don't want the language to be difficult. It seems to me that all of us as Christians need to be able to understand these things. Amen. The third volume ends up dealing with the importance of words for us, absolutely central, and providence. The fourth is called All the Good That's Ours in Christ. It will deal with faith, hope, and love, and the eschaton, oh, with wow. what happens in the end time. Four chapters for each of them. Wow. Well, Mark, maybe uh, when those come out, we'd love to have you back and uh, I'd love continue, to come back, continue uh, this conversation. And so uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. 